Good afternoon. Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Crest on this lovely June the 1st, the first day of the month of the Sacred Heart and the feast day of St. Justin Martyr. And wasn't that a funky bass line? As a, as a bassist, I have to say I have a great appreciation for that. So thank you to our producer. The prosperity gospel, the claim that God will reward the faithful with material goods in this life, this, this doctrine is spreading across the United States and across the world, and its effects are even seen in some Catholic teachers, let alone you know, Catholic lay people. Where did this theology originate from? Uh, what are its roots? And how has it embedded itself so deeply in our country, especially? There are particular names that are going to come up that, are, that will be no strangers to a lot of you listening. Thomas Stork joins us. Thomas is the author of The Prosperity Gospel, How Greed and Bad Philosophy Distorted Christ's Teachings. He is a contributing editor of the New Oxford Review, and he serves on the editorial board of the Chesterton Review. Thomas, how are you doing? Okay, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Oh, the honor is all mine. I want to say a word about Thomas's book, which is largely where we're drawing the content of th- these next two segments from. Thomas wrote this book called The Prosperity Gospel, How Greed and Bad Philosophy Distorted Christ's Teachings, and it's published by 10 books. It's a very quick read. It's only 154 pages long. And uh, I, I, I personally, I read it in one sitting. I found it to be very engaging. It certainly didn't take the direct... I mean, Thomas, I have to say, you, you, you took a very unique approach to this, and I, it, it was very refreshing. I'm so used to, and I like, books that take take us backwards, you know, uh, uh, books that trace the step backwards to kind of the, the initial move that started everything. But instead, what you did was you talked to us about the effects of the aftermath of this horrendous doctrine, and you drew us from there to the epicenter. So I want to ask you, what was your thought process behind compiling the resources and doing the research for this book? Well, I wanted to to show talk not just about the prosperity gospel, because that's pretty easy to make fun of and to point out the errors of, but I wanted to talk about why it is... um, why it is so endemic here. In fact, a title that I suggested was Seedbed of the Prosperity Gospel. I wanted to show what were the cultural uh, and institutional um, factors that made it so easy for the Prosperity Gospel to take root here and to get so many uh, adherents. And uh, it's something that's so grotesque and odd that you'd think, well, where does it come from? Mm -hmm. Why, Why do people go for it? because their soil was already prepared for it. Right. Right. And and you do a really good job of that because long before this became a doctrinal theological problem, it's very clear that there were certain epistemological problems that formed bad philosophy and these bad philosophical undercurrents gave kind of fertile bad ground for these bad seeds to take root and become what they are. So uh, let, let's start from there. Where did the corruption of epistemology and philosophical thought start? And and you do a great job. You draw from Belloc and uh, from from many of the commentators on on Euro- European denigration. So please uh, take us from that. Well, thank you. Well, in in the English speaking world, the philosophy of John Locke mm-hmm. has been extremely uh, influential, and especially in the United States. Yep. One historian said that in the U.S., Locke was a national cliche. <laughs> and <clears throat> what Locke did, unlike some of the other Enlightenment philosophers. Locke doesn't appear to be overtly anti-religious. Yep. And on some level, I don't think he was. But what he did, which was in a way more radical, more insidious than people like Voltaire, who just attacked religion, uh, what Locke did was 
he privatized religion. Mm-hmm. He made it a matter of your individual belief, and it had it had no cultural, no societal influence. Right. Uh, you could believe whatever he wants. He says, he says, if you were a heathen and you don't believe either the New or the Old Testament, so what? As long as you don't bother my property, that's fine. Right. So for him, religion is purely a matter of private opinion. Mm-hmm. It has no effect on society as a whole and ought not to, uh, no direct effect at least. And <clears throat> by doing so, he robs all the institutions of society, and some of the ones I talk about in the book are education, science, the arts, yep, yep. technology. He, re- he removes them of all except an individual purpose. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> let's talk about economics, for example. If the why did God give the human race the need and the capacity to use external goods? Obviously, not purely for our self-aggrandizement, but for to provide us with the things we need, food and all the other things that we need for living a human life. Right, and ultimately why? for the flourishing so of the common good. Important things. Right, for the flourishing of the common good, so that ultimately we can bring about the eternal salvation of souls. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And so Locke, well, Locke undermined that in a very clever way, so that the uh, you can see, for example, even in, in Thomas Jefferson's Virginia Statute of Religious Liberty mm-hmm. from 1786, religion is simply a matter of opinion, and the state's not going to interfere with opinions, because it doesn't care about opinions, Right. but it's, it can interfere with conduct. And the other big factor in the uh, that's made for the seedbed of the prosperity gospel, to use that phrase, is that the kind of Protestantism that's been predominant in the United States was the most radical of all the European and especially all the English kinds of Protestantism. Yep. The uh, the New England Protestants fled from the Church of England, the Protestant Church of England, because it was too Catholic. And so the kind of Protestantism that dominated the New England and the middle colonies was a very radical kind of Protestantism that rejected, as far as they could, any kind of reminder of, of a Catholic worldview, a Catholic kind of living Catholic civilization. And this has had tremendous intellectual uh, influence in the U.S. Right. Thomas, I want to uh, pause you right there for the interest of our listeners. Uh, for, for those of you who don't know, John Locke is often credited as one of the many but pivotal silent authors uh, of the American founding documents. Uh, uh, his thought became some of the, his philosophical thought became some of the most profound and solid philosophical underpinnings. So even something as simple as religion being a private subjective enterprise sounds innocent on the surface because it supposedly brings about the flourishing of a common good in society that's devoid of religious differences. But what it really did was it, it, it took God out of the collective public sphere to put something else there. And what, for, for Locke, this was empiricism. For Locke, this was upward social mobility. For Locke, this was private property ownership and so on and so forth. So, uh, Thomas, take us from there. Right. The, um, <clears throat> Locke made... He, he, Locke really created what we, what some people have called the naked public square, the public square in which there is no, uh, no societal, no corporate, no uh, institutional commitment to God, mm-hmm. but uh, simply whatever you want to put in there, and it's all private. So religion, at best, becomes a matter of psychological um, support or uh, in, or support for uh, living a moral life or something like that, which I wouldn't deny there is importance, but. If that's all our religion is, then it's not very much. Absolutely. And yet you find that over and over again in the um, the American thinking. One of the most interesting and 
and, and striking aspects of this is the Supreme Court's treatment of um, religious liberty questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, the first <clears throat> religious liberty question that case was the uh, the uh, one of the Mormon cases about polygamy, and the Supreme Court, <clears throat> in talking in, in upholding the law prohibiting polygamy, didn't deal at all with the theological question of does God uh, forbid polygamy, or does he command it the way the Mormons said? It simply said, this is irrelevant to us. We're not interested in that. The fact that the Mormons claimed it was a divine commandment to uh, practice polygamy, the Supreme Court said, basically, we don't care about that. We're only concerned about secular matters, because that's all that the uh, secular laws can touch. That's all that the state has any interest in. Mm -hmm. And uh, And the entire system of government... the entire system of government that was set up uh, in the Constitutional Convention, the republic that we set up, the the basis of uh, division of powers, check and balance, all of these things hinged upon the notion that we were not going to touch moral issues from a divine perspective. We were going to look at things from a national, civil, political perspective. Yeah, and and the First Amendment, of course, uh, makes that very clear, and Congress will make no law concerning an establishment of religion. Uh, now, at the time, of course, it would have been difficult and impossible even to have an <clears throat> established religion, mm-hmm. but there were other ways that they could have done it. They could have approached the matter that were non-Lockean. Uh, they could have tried to find uh, a common denominator among all the Christian groups that were there instead of saying, well, we don't care about religion. It's not important. It's not, it's not a matter of societal concern. Right. And if religion isn't important for the society, why in the world would it be important for me as an individual? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And... We we wonder why we've come where we are, when in reality we gave our our founding fathers essentially gave us the groundwork necessary to get here, albeit accidentally. I want to put that out there. The founding documents of the United States are still some of the greatest documents ever written in terms of uh, the founding of any nation. The great American experiment is still bringing about the, the most amount of human flourishing compared to any nation on the planet. But that being said, we would be remiss if we were to proclaim that this nation is 100% perfect. Now, going back to Lockean uh, philosophy... Locke believed in a kind of fragmented teleology that had subjective ends, which stood, and in, in you do this in chapter two of your book, which stood in stark juxtaposition to the Thomistic Aristotelian notion that there's a unified teleology to all of our acts and all that exists. Right. Well, Locke was an empiricist, and he was essentially a nominalist. Mm-hmm. And that's clear if you look at his metaphysics. And so his political philosophy flows right from his metaphysics. And if all that exists, or all that's knowable, or individual things, then you can't really, you know, you can't really assign a common purpose to anything because it's what you want. You know, the economy means one something for you, science means something for you, education means something for you, and it might mean something completely different for me. But if you, but if the only thing that's knowable, or the only thing that exists, are these individual things, and there's no commonality that that has any meaning, then you haven't got anything else. And so your political philosophy is going to necessarily reflect your metaphysics. Exactly, and 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 this this denigration of thought that kind of formed the framework of Western civilization's continued empiricist materialistic view, coupled with you know kind of Feuerbachian anthropological materialism. Man is his own solution. God is not needed in the public sphere. Nietzsche's destructive uh, "God is dead" principle. From all of this nihilism, from all of this, then is it any wonder that we wound up at this horrendous theology of the prosperity gospel? So we've got just under a minute in this 
segment, I've been talking to Thomas Stork, author of The Prosperity Gospel, How Greed and Bad Philosophy Distorted Christ's Teachings. Now, we're going to pick up this conversation on the other side. Uh, just in, in terms of one sentence, uh, even if it were to be ridiculous, why is the prosperity, how did, how did Locke bridge the gap to the prosperity gospel? Well, he, as I said, the main thing is loss of purpose. Mm. So if, you're, if, you, if, you, if your purpose is to get rich or to live a satisfying life, then you're going to use the gospel for those purposes. Exactly. Well, th- uh, thank you, Thomas. We're going to continue this conversation on the other side of the break. Again, talking to Thomas Stork, author of The Prosperity Gospel, How Greed and Bad Philosophy Distorted Christ's Teachings. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Christian in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on this Thursday, June the 1st, the feast day of St. Justin Martyr. We're talking about, we're talking to Thomas Stork, author of The Prosperity Gospel, How Greed and Bad Philosophy Distorted Christ's Teachings. This is published by Tan Books, and I would greatly encourage everyone listening, if you're interested, do pick up a copy. Thomas does a fantastic job of drawing the lines from all of the subsidiary effects that we are seeing, which are really just the aftermath, aftermath explosions. And, and he draws us all to the epicenter of, of kind of the foundational philosophical damage that began in the Western Hemisphere that has led us to where we are right now. So, Thomas, you, it, you did it brilliantly. I, I was concerned even as I asked you, but you did it brilliantly. In one sentence, you, you helped us bridge the gap between Lockean empiricism to the prosperity gospel, and you hinged it. You hinged it upon loss of a collective transcendental purpose. So, draws back to that once again. Well, the yeah, the lack of purpose. Um, there are certain things that we we feel are oh, are, are concerns, are legitimate concerns of society, and we think about economic policy or foreign policy, questions of war and peace. And those are indeed legitimate concerns of society, but we don't think of of religious concerns as being uh, legitimate to society. This doesn't mean that the government would impose a religion on people. Mm-hmm. What it means is that at the level, at the, it means at very least that at a societal level, we would be concerned about truth and falsity in theological matters as well as in matters like economic policy. Right. Um, President Eisenhower, for example, was famous for a comment he made, uh, I think right before he took office, that he said, our, our country demands a uh, our, our way of our way of government presupposes a um, religious uh, attitude, but I don't care which one it is. In other words, <laughs> the truth about religion is not important, but the truth right. of religion is the overwhelming important thing for mankind. I mean, we're destined for heaven or we're destined for hell. And the way we believe has a huge uh, is a huge factor in determining what our final or eternal destiny is going to be. Right. And if I, as a Catholic, for example, if I think Catholicism is true, which I do, obviously, then when I become when I act as a citizen or a member of a some kind of a corporate body, am I supposed to leave that behind? Am I supposed to pretend that all oh, my Catholic 
faith matters to me and to my family and to my circle of friends. But when I act in the society as a whole, it's of no importance. Right. And we all recognize this, for example, in things like abortion. Right. Catholic politicians nowadays routinely betray the church's teaching on abortion. Right. I was going to and bring that up exactly. Bad, terrible matter. But it's not just on abortion. It's on the whole question of the, the truth or the Catholic faith mm-hmm. and, and what that should have, what influence that should have on the way we live, on the way our society functions, on the way its institutions function, on the way its laws are framed. Right. You, you think about exactly what you just said about how politicians very often take the public sphere <coughs> to the effect of, I profess this faith, but I will not impose this faith and what I believe upon the way I govern this country. Well, okay, that sounds nice in a vacuum, but again, you're looking at a fragmented teleology, which means, fundamentally, you're looking at a fragmented individual. And such a fragmented individual will not appeal to objective standards of truth because Objective truth is by itself unified, largely because it comes from the mind of God, but even more so because God himself is truth. So to profess that I have a religion but I won't abide by it is to also effectively declare I have the objective standard of truth. I just choose to appeal to whatever relativistic notion pops into my head that's probably going to get me the most votes in the next election cycle. Exactly, and this is not anything new. Right. Uh, sometimes people <clears throat> look, for example, to John Kennedy's address in 1960 to the Houston Ministerial Council and mm-hmm. say, "Oh, he betrayed he betrayed the the, uh, the Catholic faith and in the way he did." But if you go back to 1928, Al Smith did the same thing in an article that he wrote in the Atlantic uh, in response to an article by a Protestant lawyer who was challenging Smith's. Um, Catholicism and his, his being able to serve as, as president. And Smith basically said the same thing. He said, there's no ecclesiastical council that's going to tell me what to do. Right. You think so like- this is not anything new. In fact, one of the things I talk about in the book is how Catholics in the United States have been um, co-opted into this Protestant Lockean mindset, and we've never really amounted an effective defense in, to try to evangelize the culture. You know, it's it's funny, you think about uh, Kennedy, JFK's inaugural address. Now, I, I'm an immigrant, I, I, and clearly I wasn't alive when the inaugural address was, was given. Nonetheless, those words, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. That, 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 that small snippet is, is universally renowned because it seems to be very powerful. It seems to be a call to selfless service for the sake of one's nation. And on the surface, that's truly good, and by itself it truly is. But... What Kennedy was still doing here was appealing to this kind of, uh, again, a fragmented teleology of arguing that, well, we are here for a societal polis. We, we are trying to develop the polis. Whatever you believe is besides the point. We are American first. Because this seems to be... The, see, in appealing to a fragmented teleology, man still seeks to find an objective truth to abide by. And, and for a large portion of recent history, Americans identified as primarily American first. Th- this was what was given to us by our civil leaders. That is absolutely exactly true. The, um, the idea that our Catholicism is more important than anything else, our faith uh, handed to us by Christ through his church, that's, that's the most important thing for us, not whether we're Americans or Canadians or Argentines or right. French or whatever. And, and, and mind the, you, everything else has to be subordinated to that. Amen. Adherence to Catholic truth. 
Amen. And mind you, as I say this, I love this nation. That it, that I truly do. I mean, I immigrated here. My bride and I are raising our children here. I love being a citizen of this wonderful nation. The freedom that we have, the, the grace and blessing of potential upward social mobility is unlike anything the rest of the world has, including religious liberty. But we also have to acknowledge the philosophical underpinnings that have brought about our modern problems. Now, I want to uh, pivot the conversation just based on how you structured your book in the second half. First John chapter 4, verse 17, when I was a Pentecostal, this verse was used by traveling preachers to make appeals to the prosperity gospel in this regard. You know, Herein is our love made perfect, but they never highlighted that part. All they would say is, because as he is, so we are in this world. And Christ is reigning as king over all, and he is majestic in heaven, and so we are in this world. And that became one of the kind of fundamental driving forces taken from sacred scripture for the selling of the lie that is a prosperity gospel. So help us shed some light. You know, this lack of purpose and all of a sudden this materialistic purpose shows forth clothed in a a pseudo-theological notion. Yeah, well, uh, in his encyclical, Quas Primus, Bias XI pointed out, his encyclical on the the, uh, kingship of Christ, pointed out that Christ is king not only of individuals, but of nations mm-hmm. as a whole. And this would go even as, even further than that. He's king of cultures. That's why we used to talk about Christendom. It was a, it was a civilization that, at least formally, and in, in, in many respects, actually, acknowledged Christ as king, and uh, in which people imperfectly, yes, tried to live up, tried to live up to that. And, um, <clears throat> but we, we have no such acknowledgement in this country, of the uh, fundamental truth, uh, even of the existence of God, uh, let alone of anything else. And I, I completely agree. The names that you mentioned in your introduction, from page one to page two onwards, Joel Osteen, Paula White, <coughs> none of these were alien to me, and I grew up in Malaysia. In the Assemblies of God, these people are tapped upon. Their theologies are believed, and it's horrifying. Paula White will go so far as to say, no, God has humongous plans for you, big plans for you. And those big plans include a life of wealth, a life of luxury. And and therein lies the problem. Like you said, it is so easy to make fun of and, and, and to deflate the bubble that is the prosperity gospel. But but that there are deeper demonic underpinnings that, that drive the thing forward. Oh, yeah, I mean... It ignores, of course, <clears throat> the whole message of, of especially our Lord himself when he talks about taking up your cross and things like that, that um, we can't promise ourselves a life of prosperity or good health or good relationships or happiness or anything like that. But we always have to trust in, 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 uh, in God nonetheless. And uh, I have a quote uh, from Cardinal Newman in the book about how God might leave us in uh, doubt, in, in despair, even almost, well, not, not the spirit in a theological sense, but the spirit in a worldly sense, but we still have to trust in him. Yep. Uh, we, can't, we can't promise ourselves um, just because God loves us doesn't mean, in fact, it says in the, in the scripture, uh, he whom he loves, he's going to discipline. Right. So the, the negative events, if you will, that occur to us in this world, God permits them or wills them for our benefit. For our eternal salvation, Amen. Which is the only uh, event we can promise ourselves: this is going to be great. This is going to be perfect. Uh, not in this world. And you highlight exactly that. I want to talk about page 100 in a bit, but I want to draw back to exactly what you said about Cardinal Newman. I'm looking at the page right now. I, I 
recalled it as soon as you mentioned it. The quote goes, if I'm in sickness, my sickness may serve him. In perplexity, my perplexity may serve him. If I'm in sorrow, my sorrow may serve him. He does nothing in vain. He knows what he is about. And uh, talk about pragmatism, because uh, that's one of the great threats of the prosperity gospel. Just on, a, on an applied theological level, people who trust in these pastors and give that seed money and don't see the sudden miraculous flourishing in their own finances. Well, the, the temptation then is to run away and to disavow the God who gave us the fullness of the gospel entirely. Yeah, it's, it's really strange. I mean, I, I, I have to say I've never personally been involved in any religious group that was adhering to the prosperity gospel. Even though I'm a convert, it was from the Episcopal Church, which is not usually um, identified with that. But I've read about people, for example, who would give money to these prosperity preachers, and then uh, the money they needed. And there's an organization that tries to get help them get some of this money back, and sometimes they can't get it back. But then what do they do? They turn around and give it to them again. Right. Uh, they're so mesmerized by the message, and it's, it's, it's psychologically, it's very hard to explain. Theologically, of course, it's it's nonsense, but psychologically, it's, it's, I guess it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's such a need for these people to um, have something to, to hang on to, because mm-hmm. there's, there's, society offers them really very little, uh, very little else, so this is at least a positive message that they can, think they can hang on to. Right. And, and, you know, one of the driving forces behind that is our own concupiscence. You highlight St. Thomas Aquinas in talking about our desire for material goods that way. Aquinas does that on the one hand, no, our desire for material goods is not infinite because we were, we were made for something greater than that. But on the other hand, it is infinite because it appeals to a concupiscible nature. Yeah, obviously, if I say I need 10 houses... That's obviously ridiculous, because I can't even live in most of them. <laughs> right. Um, some people might need two houses, I acknowledge that, but beyond maybe two, we, we, it's, not, it's not consonant with our human nature. We need a house, we need a home of some kind, but um, at some point there is a, there's a limit on how much we eat, just like there's a limit on how much we can eat. <laughs> right. Uh, but the, um, the concupiscence, especially when you, when you put your wealth in terms of, of bank accounts and stock certificates, there's no limit to, our, to what our concupiscence do. Those they don't take up much room, <laughs> uh, especially electronically. Right, right. Well, I want to thank you so much for this conversation, Thomas. Th- this has been very enlightening. Uh, this, this book was a pleasurable read. I want to encourage all of you listening to pro- obtain a copy of it. This is Thomas Stork's The Prosperity Gospel, How Greed and Bad Philosophy Distorted Christ's Teaching. Thomas is <clears throat> a contributing editor of the New Oxford Review, and he serves on the editorial board of the Chesterton Review. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. <laughs>